Volume Ten, Chapter Ten of Cecilia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michelle Crandall. Cecilia: Memoirs of an Heiress by Fanny Burney. Volume Ten, Chapter Ten, Part Two. A Termination. When he returned from his embassy, he found Delville in her room, and each waiting with impatience the event of his negotiation. The doctor, with much alacrity, gave Cecilia the invitation with which he had been charged, but Delville, jealous for her dignity, was angry and dissatisfied his father brought it not himself, and exclaimed with much mortification, "'Is this all the grace he accorded me?' "'Patience, patience, sir,' answered the doctor, when you have thwarted anybody in their first hope and ambition, do you expect they will send you their compliments, and many thanks for the disappointment? Pray, let the good gentleman have his way in some little matters, since you have taken such effectual care to put out of his reach the power of having it in greater. Oh, far from starting obstacles, cried Cecilia, let us solicit a reconciliation with whatever concessions he may require. The misery of disobedience we have but too fatally experienced, and thinking as we think of filial ties and parental claims, how can we ever hope happiness till forgiven and taken into favour? True, my Cecilia, answered Delville, and generous and condescending is true, and if you can thus sweetly comply, I will gratefully forbear making any opposition. Too much already have you suffered from the impetuosity of my temper, but I will try to curb it in future by the remembrance of your injuries. The whole of this unfortunate business— said Dr. Lyster, has been the result of pride and prejudice. Your uncle the dean began it by his arbitrary will, as if an ordinance of his own could arrest the course of nature, and as if he had the power to keep alive, by the loan of a name, a family in the male branch already extinct. Your father, Mr. Mortimer, continued it with the same self-partiality, preferring the wretched gratification of tickling his ear with a favourite sound to the solid happiness of his son with a rich and deserving wife. Yet this, however, remember, if to pride and prejudice you owe your miseries, so wonderfully is good and evil balanced, that to pride and prejudice you will also owe their termination. For all that I could say to Mr. Delville, either of reasoning or entreaty, and I said all I could suggest, and I suggested all a man need wish to hear, was totally thrown away till I pointed out to him his own disgrace in having a daughter-in-law immured in these mean lodgings. Thus, my dear young lady, the terror which drove you to this house, and the sufferings which have confined you in it, will prove in the event the source of your future peace, for when all my best rhetoric failed to melt Mr. Delville, I instantly brought him to terms by coupling his name with a pawnbroker's and he could not with more disgust hear his son called Mr. Beverley than think of his son's wife when he hears of the three blue balls. Thus the same passions, taking but different directions, do mischief and cure it alternately. Such, my good young friends, is the moral of your calamities. You have all, in my opinion, been strangely at cross-purposes, and trifled, no one knows why, with the first blessings of life. My only hope is that now— having among you thrown away its luxuries, you will have known enough misery to be glad to keep its necessaries. This excellent man was yet prevailed upon by Delville to stay and assist in removing the feeble Cecilia to St. James's Square. 
Henrietta, for whom Mr. Arnott's equipage and servants had still remained in town, was then, though with much difficulty, persuaded to go back to Suffolk, but Cecilia, however fond of her society, was too sensible of the danger and impropriety of her present situation to receive from it any pleasure. Mr. Delvile's reception of Cecilia was formal and cold, yet, as she now appeared publicly in the character of his son's wife, the best apartment in his house had been prepared for her use. His domestics were instructed to wait upon her with the utmost respect, and Lady Honoria Pemberton, who was accidentally in town, offered from curiosity what Mr. Delvile accepted from parade, to be herself in St. James's Square, in order to do honour to his daughter-in-law's first entrance. When Cecilia was a little recovered from the shock of the first interview, and the fatigue of her removal, the anxious Mortimer would instantly have had her conveyed to her own apartment. But, willing to exert herself, and hoping to oblige Mr. Delvile, she declared she was well able to remain some time longer in the drawing-room. "'My good friends,' said Dr. Leicester, "'in the course of my long practice I have found it impossible to study the human frame without a little studying the human mind, and from all that I have yet been able to make out, either by observation, reflection, or comparison, it appears to me at this moment that Mr. Mortimer Delville has got the best wife, and that you, sir, have here the most faultless daughter-in-law that any husband or any father in the three kingdoms belonging to his majesty can either have or desire. Cecilia smiled. Mortimer looked his delighted concurrence. Mr. Delville forced himself to make a stiff inclination of the head, and Lady Honoria gaily exclaimed, Dr. Leicester, when you say the best and most faultless, you should always add the rest of the company accepted. Upon my word, cried the doctor, I beg your ladyship's pardon, but there is a certain unguarded warmth comes across a man now and then, that drives etiquette out of his head, and makes him speak truth before he well knows where he is. Oh, terrible! cried she, this is sinking deeper and deeper. I had hoped the town air would have taught you better things, but I find you have visited at Delville Castle till you are fit for no other place. Whoever, Lady Honoria, said Mr. Delville, much offended, is fit for Delville Castle, must be fit for every other place, though every other place may by no means be fit for him. Oh, yes, sir, cried she giddily, every possible place will be fit for him, if he can once bear with that. Don't you think so, Dr. Leicester? Why, when a man has the honour to see your ladyship, answered he good-humouredly, he is apt to think too much of the person to care about the place. Come, I begin to have some hopes of you, cried she, for I see, for a doctor, you have really a very pretty notion of a compliment. Only you have one great fault still. You look the whole time as if you said it for a joke. Why, in fact, madame, when a man has been a plain dealer in both word and look for upwards of fifty years, tis expecting too quick a reformation to demand ductility of voice and eye from him at a blow. However, give me but a little time and a little encouragement— and with such a tutress, twill be hard if I do not, in a very few lessons, learn the right method of seasoning a simper, and the newest fashion of twisting words for meaning. But pray, cried she, upon those occasions, always remember to look serious. Nothing sets off a compliment so much as a long face. If you are tempted to an unseasonable laugh, think of Delville Castle. Tis an expedient I commonly make use of myself when I am afraid of being too frisky." and it always succeeds, for the very recollection of it gives me the headache in a moment. 
"'Upon my word, Mr. Delville, you must have the constitution of five men to have kept such good health, after living so long at that horrible place. You can't imagine how you've surprised me, for I have regularly expected to hear of your death at the end of every summer, and I assure you once I was very near buying mourning.' "'The estate which descends to a man from his own ancestors, Lady Honoria,' answered Mr. Delville, "'will seldom be apt to injure his health if he is conscious of committing no misdemeanour which has degraded their memory.' "'How vastly odious this new father of yours is,' said Lady Honoria, in a whisper to Cecilia. "'What could ever induce you to give up your charming estate for the sake of coming into this fusty old family? I would really advise you to have your marriage annulled, you have only, you know, to take an oath that you were forcibly run away with, and as you are an heiress, and the Delvilles are also violent, it will easily be credited, and then, as soon as you are at liberty, I would advise you to marry my little Lord Durford. Would you only, then, said Cecilia, have me regain my freedom in order to part with it? Certainly, answered Lady Honoria, for you can do nothing at all without being married. A single woman is a thousand times more shackled than a wife for she is accountable to everybody, and a wife, you know, has nothing to do but just to manage her husband. And that, said Cecilia, smiling, you consider as a trifle? Yes, if you do but marry a man you don't care for. You are right, then, indeed, to recommend to me my Lord Derford. Oh, yes, he will make the prettiest husband in the world. You may fly about yourself as wild as a lark, and keep him the whole time as tame as a jackdaw. And though he may complain of you to your friends— he will never have the courage to find fault to your face. But, as to Mortimer, you will not be able to govern him as long as you live. For the moment you have put him upon the fret, you'll fall into the dumps yourself. Hold out your hand to him, and losing the opportunity of gaining some material point, make up at the first soft word. You think, then, the quarrelling more amusing than the reconciliation? Oh, a thousand times! For while you are quarrelling, you may say anything and demand anything— but when you are reconciled, you ought to behave pretty and seem contented. Those who presume to have any pretensions to your ladyship, said Cecilia, would be made happy indeed should they hear your principles. Oh, it would not signify at all, answered she, for one's fathers, and uncles, and those sorts of people, always make connections for one, and not a creature thinks of our principles till they find them out by our conduct and nobody can possibly do that till we are married, for they give us no power beforehand. The men know nothing of us in the world while we are single, but how we can dance a minuet or play a lesson upon the harpsichord. And what else, said Mr. Delville, who advanced and heard this last speech, need a young lady of rank desire to be known for? Your ladyship surely would not have her degrade herself by studying like an artist or professor? Oh, no, sir, I would not have her study at all. It's mighty well for children, but really, after sixteen, and when one has come out— one has quite fatigue enough in dressing and going to public places, and ordering new things, without all that torment of first and second position, and E upon the first line and F upon the first space. "'Your ladyship must, however, pardon me for hinting,' said Mr. Delville, "'that a young lady of condition, who has a proper sense of her dignity, cannot be seen too rarely or known too little.' "'Oh, but I hate dignity,' cried she carelessly, "'for it's the dullest thing in the world.' I always thought it was owing to that you were so little amusing. Really, I beg your pardon, sir. I meant to say so little talkative. 
I can easily credit that your ladyship spoke hastily, answered he, highly piqued, for I believe, indeed, a person of a family such as mine will hardly be supposed to have come into the world for the office of amusing it. Oh, no, sir, cried she, with pretended innocence, nobody, I am sure, ever saw you with such a thought. Then, turning to Cecilia, she added in a whisper, You cannot imagine, my dear Mrs. Mortimer, how I detest this old cousin of mine. Now, pray, tell me honestly, if you don't hate him yourself? I hope, said Cecilia, to have no reason. Lord, how you are always upon your guard! If I were half as cautious, I should die of the vapours in a month. The only thing that keeps me at all alive is now and then making people angry, for the folks at our house let me get out so seldom, and then send me with such stupid old chaperones, that giving them a little torment is really the only entertainment I can procure myself. Oh, but I had almost forgot to tell you a most delightful thing. What is it? Why, you must know I have the greatest hopes in the world that my father will quarrel with old Mr. Delville. And is that such a delightful thing? Oh, yes, I have lived upon the very idea this fortnight, for then, you know, they'll both be in a passion, and I shall see which of them looks frightfulest. When Lady Honoria whispers, cried Mortimer, I always suspect some mischief. No, indeed, answered her ladyship. I was merely congratulating Mrs. Mortimer about her marriage. Though really, upon second thoughts, I don't know whether I should not rather condole with her, for I have long been convinced that she has a prodigious antipathy to you. I saw it the whole time I was at Delville Castle, where she used to change colour at the very sound of your name, a symptom I never perceived when I talked to her of my Lord Durford, who would certainly have made her a thousand times a better husband. "'If you mean on account of his title, Lady Honoria,' said Mr. Delville, "'your ladyship must be strangely forgetful of the connections of your family, not to remember that Mortimer, after the death of his uncle and myself,' must inevitably inherit one far more honourable than a new-sprung-up family like my lord Ernolf's could offer. Yes, sir, but then, you know, she would have kept her estate, which would have been a vastly better thing than an old pedigree of new relations. Besides, I don't find that anybody cares for the noble blood of the Delvilles but themselves, and if she had kept her fortune, everybody, I fancy, would have cared for that. Everybody then, said Mr. Delvile, must be highly mercenary and ignoble, or the blood of an ancient and honourable house would be thought contaminated by the most distant hint of so degrading a comparison. Dear sir, what should we all do with birth if it was not for wealth? It would neither take us to Ranelagh, nor the opera, nor buy us caps nor wigs, nor supply us with dinners nor bouquets. Caps and wigs, dinners and bouquets, interrupted Mr. Delville, your ladyship's estimate of wealth is really extremely minute. Why, you know, sir, as to caps and wigs, they are very serious things, for we should look mighty droll figures to go about bareheaded, and as to dinners, how would the Delvilles have lasted all these thousand centuries if they had disdained eating them? Whatever may be your ladyship's satisfaction, said Mr. Delville angrily, in depreciating a house that has the honour of being nearly allied with your own, you will not, I hope at least, instruct this lady, turning to Cecilia, to adopt a similar contempt of its antiquity and dignity." This lady, cried Mortimer, will at least, by condescending to become one of it, secure us from any danger that such contempt may spread further. Let me but, said Cecilia, looking gratefully at him, be as secure from exciting as I am from feeling contempt. And what can I have to wish? 
"'Good and excellent young lady,' said Dr. Leicester, "'the first of blessings indeed is yours in the temperance of your own mind. "'When you began your career in life, "'you appeared to us short-sighted mortals "'to possess more than your share of the good things of this world. "'Such a union of riches, beauty, independence, talents, education, and virtue, "'seemed a monopoly to raise general envy and discontent. "'But mark with what a scrupulous exactness the good and bad is ever balanced.' You have had a thousand sorrows to which those who have looked up to you have been strangers, and for which not all the advantages you possess have been equivalent. There is evidently throughout this world, in things as well as persons, a leveling principle, at war with preeminence, and destructive of perfection. Ah! cried Mortimer, in a low voice to Cecilia, how much higher must we all rise, or how much lower must you fall, ere any leveling principle will approximate us with you. He then entreated her to spare her strength and spirits by returning to her own apartment, and the conversation was broken up. "'Pray permit me, Mrs. Mortimer,' cried Lady Honoria, in taking leave, "'to beg that the first guest you invite to Delville Castle may be me. You know my partiality to it already. I shall be particularly happy in waiting upon you in tempestuous weather. We can all stroll out together, you know, very sociably, and I shan't be much in your way.' for if there should happen to be a storm, you can easily lodge me under some great tree, and while you amuse yourselves with a tete-a-tete, give me the indulgence of my own reflections. I am vastly fond of thinking and being alone, you know, especially in thunder and lightning. She then ran away, and they all separated. Cecilia was conveyed upstairs, and the worthy Dr. Leicester, loaded with acknowledgments of every kind, set out for the country. Cecilia, still weak and much emaciated, for some time lived almost wholly in her own room, where the grateful and solicitous attendance of Mortimer alleviated the pain both of her illness and confinement. But as soon as her health permitted travelling, he hastened with her abroad. Here tranquillity once more made its abode in the heart of Cecilia, that heart so long torn with anguish, suspense, and horror. Mrs. Delville received her with the most rapturous fondness, and the impression of her sorrows gradually wore away from her kind maternal cares, and from the watchful affection and delighted tenderness of her son. The Egglestons now took entire possession of her estate, and Delville, at her entreaty, forbore shewing any personal resentment of their conduct, and put into the hands of a lawyer the arrangement of the affair. They continued abroad some months, and the health of Mrs. Delville was tolerably re-established. They were then summoned home by the death of Lord Delville, who bequeathed to his nephew Mortimer his town-house, and whatever of his estate was not annexed to his title, which necessarily devolved to his brother. The sister of Mrs. Delville, a woman of high spirit and strong passions, lived not long after him, but having in her latter days intimately connected herself with Cecilia, she was so much charmed with her character, and so much dazzled by her admiration of the extraordinary sacrifice she had made, that in a fit of sudden enthusiasm she altered her will, to leave her, and to her sole disposal, the fortune which, almost from his infancy, she had destined for her nephew. Cecilia, astonished and penetrated, opposed the alteration. But even her sister, now Lady Delville, to whom she daily became dearer, earnestly supported it, while Mortimer, delighted to restore to her through his own family, any part of that power and independence of which her generous and pure regard for himself had deprived her was absolute in refusing that the deed should be revoked cecilia from this flattering transaction received a further conviction of the malignant falsehood of mr monckton who had always represented to her the whole of the delville family 
as equally poor in their circumstances and illiberal in their minds. The strong spirit of active benevolence, which had ever marked her character, was now again displayed, though no longer as hitherto unbounded. She had learnt the error of profusion, even in charity and beneficence, and she had a motive for economy in her animated affection for Mortimer. She soon sent for Albany, whose surprise that she still existed, and whose rapture at her recovered prosperity, now threatened his senses from the tumult of his joy, with nearly the same danger they had lately been menaced by terror. But though her donations were circumscribed by prudence, and their objects were selected with discrimination, she gave to herself all her former benevolent pleasure in solacing his afflictions, while she softened his asperity, by restoring to him his favorite office of being her almoner and monitor. She next sent to her own pensioners, relieved those distresses which her sudden absence had occasioned, and renewed and continued the salaries she had allowed them. All who had nourished reasonable expectations from her bounty she remembered, though she raised no new claimants but with economy and circumspection. But neither Albany nor the old pensioners felt the satisfaction of Mortimer, who saw with new wonder the virtues of her mind, and whose admiration of her excellencies made his gratitude perpetual for the happiness of his lot. The tender-hearted Henrietta, in returning to her new friends, gave way with artless openness to the violence of untamed grief. But finding Mr. Arnott as wretched as herself, the sympathies Cecilia had foreseen soon endeared them to each other, while the little interest taken in either by Mrs. Harrel made them almost inseparable companions. Mrs. Harrel, wearied by their melancholy and sick of retirement, took the earliest opportunity that was offered her of changing her situation. She married very soon a man of fortune in the neighborhood, and, quickly forgetting all the past, thoughtlessly began the world again, with new hopes, new connections, new equipages, and new engagements. Henrietta was then obliged to go again to her mother, where, though deprived of all the indulgencies to which she was now become familiar, she was not more hurt by the separation than Mr. Arnott. So sad and so solitary his house seemed in her absence, that he soon followed her to town, and returned not till he carried her back its mistress. And there the gentle gratitude of her soft and feeling heart engaged from the worthy Mr. Arnott the tenderest affection, and in time healed the wound of his early and hopeless passion. The injudicious, the volatile, yet noble-minded Belfield, to whose mutable and enterprising disposition life seemed always rather beginning than progressive, roved from employment to employment, and from public life to retirement, soured with the world, and discontented with himself, till vanquished at length by the constant friendship of Delville, he consented to accept his good offices in again entering the army, and being fortunately ordered out upon foreign service, his hopes were revived by ambition, and his prospects were brightened by a view of future honour. The wretched Monkton, dupe of his own cunning and artifices, still lived in lingering misery, doubtful which was most acute, the pain of his wound and confinement, or of his defeat and disappointment. Led on by a vain belief that he had parts to conquer all difficulties, he had indulged without restraint a passion in which interest was seconded by inclination. Allured by such fascinating powers, he shortly suffered nothing to stop his course, and though when he began his career he would have started at the mention of actual dishonour, long before it was concluded neither treachery nor perjury were regarded by him as stumbling-blocks. All fear of failing was lost in vanity, all sense of probity was sunk in interest, all scruples of conscience were left behind by the heat of the chase. 
yet the unforeseen and melancholy catastrophe of his long arts illustrated in his despite what his principles had obscured, that even in worldly pursuits where fraud outruns integrity, failure joins dishonor to loss, and disappointment excites triumph instead of pity. The upright mind of Cecilia, her purity, her virtue, and the moderation of her wishes, gave to her, in the warm affection of Lady Delville, and the unremitting fondness of Mortimer, all the happiness human life seems capable of receiving. Yet human it was, and as such, imperfect. She knew that, at times, the whole family must murmur at her loss of fortune, and at times she murmured herself to be thus portionless, though an heiress. Rationally, however, she surveyed the world at large, and finding that, of the few who had any happiness, there were none without some misery, she checked the rising sigh of repining mortality, and, grateful with general felicity, bore partial evil with cheerfulness resignation. End of chapter 10 End of Cecilia, Memoirs of an Heiress by Frances Burney Recorded by Michelle Crandall, Fremont, California, November 2008